Hey, Unnaturalists. I'm Emily. I'm Andy. And welcome back. Is this the season finale? Last episode of the season. Welcome yeah. back. Welcome to the season <laughs> two finale. No, it's season three. We're in season three. Okay. <laughs> We're you off to what? a hell of a start. <laughs> start over. Start over. No, 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 no. This is going in. Season three, episode something, last one of the season. We'll be back in a, we'll be back in a couple of months because clearly, even though even though you need we a had break. like even though we had like a month of technical difficulties where we took a break, we we need a little longer to just regroup mentally, physically, oh. spiritually, cloacally. It's been an eventful season, I would say. Yeah, it has. I I actually checked this morning. We did 32 episodes, give or take. Handful of technical issues to boot, I would say. <laughs> Maybe more than a handful. We definitely had more technical issues this season than our other seasons, I would say. Third time's the charm, I guess. Yeah, maybe. But the point is, we persevered, Emily. <laughs> We did, barely. I can only speak for me, but you and I were never really discussed our goals or expectations. Or at least if we did when we launched this, I completely forgot what they were. I think our only thing was that we just agreed that we were going to keep doing this until like until either of us felt like it was it was like a job and it was too much and we're Three seasons in, and we don't feel like that yet. So we're just here to have fun. And for the people who listen, thanks for coming along on the ride. Yeah. But the fact that we've reached people all around the world is just kind of mind-blowing, but awesome at the same time. And we're both super grateful for everybody who's given us a listen, whether it's in the last few weeks or anybody who's been with us the entire ride here. So without further ado... Let's get into the final episode of season three, shall we? We shall. This is a case that we've brought up a few times organically in recent weeks. And because of that and recent events, I thought it was only fitting that we showcase it for our last episode of the season. And funny story. So this happened a while back at my real job. We had an intern with us, maybe 19 or 20 years old. Good kid, just kind of learning the radio business and working his way into it. One day, he came in with this gray hoodie over his head, and he had some aviator shades on. And one of my coworkers jokingly said to him, who are you supposed to be, the Unabomber? To which he replied, the you know what? Oh my god. He had no idea who the Unabomber was. And then we kind of gave him a quick Cliff Notes version of what went down. He was absolutely in shock and proceeded to say things like, That actually happened? Why did he do it? What was his motive? Why did the media publish the manifesto like when he was finding out all of this stuff? And how did he get caught? Well, today we're going to get into all of that. Ted Kaczynski doesn't exactly fit into that mold that we tend to have for most murderers. For starters, by all accounts, he had a great childhood, grew up in a loving family home in the Chicago area. He was an excellent student, later described as healthy and well-adjusted by his teachers, he was one of the smartest people in the world with a purported IQ of 168, which is higher than Einstein, by the way. And he was even sympathetic to people who were less fortunate than himself. Doesn't exactly fit the profile there. Right. But his life really took a turn into a new direction while he was in college at Harvard University, he participated in a CIA-subsidized experiment that went on for a number of years 
focusing on psychological control known as MKUltra. Not long after homemade bombs began detonating all over the country, and it would take investigators 17 long years before they were able to make an arrest, resulting in, at the time of his capture, the longest and most expensive investigation in the history of the FBI. But it wasn't until his 35,000-word manifesto was published that an arrest was finally made, thanks to someone who knew him personally and identified his writings. This is the story of Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. The bomb on the Yale campus today blew up in the computer sciences building. A small bomb exploded in a mail pouch in the cargo hold. For years, the only clue to his identity was this single sketch of a shadowy hooded figure. It was all there today, all 35,000 words of the Unabomber's message to America. Industrial society and its future. I would like to say that our reaction to, to today's plea agreement is one of deep relief. On May 25th, 1978, a package bearing the name of Buckley Christ was found in the parking lot of Northwestern University. The package was just sitting next to the campus mailbox, though, so instead of putting it in the mail, the passerby who found it decided to return it to the return address, which was Buckley Christ. He was an engineering professor at the nearby Northwestern University. But the only issue was, Christ never remembered sending out this package. He was suspicious of opening it, so he called the campus security guard, a guy by the name of Terry Marks, thinking that maybe there was something of suspicious nature inside, maybe drugs or something. That was happening a lot in the 1970s. Apparently people were shipping drugs and packages. So when Terry Marks opened it, a pipe bomb exploded. But saying it exploded would probably be a generous way of describing it. More or less, it just kind of set fire and made a little bang. It didn't kill him. It didn't even seriously injure him. But it was the first of dozens of homemade bombs that would be sent all over the country in the next 17 years by a man known by the moniker, the Unabomber, which was a code given to him by the FBI that stands for University and Airline Bombing. Oh. Yeah. See, I couldn't, I could never, I could never remember like what it stood for or how he got that name. The more you know, right? The more you know. But it would actually be a number of years before the media and the public actually began using that name for him. For a while, he was just called the Scrapyard Bomber because most of his stuff was made from... A cloaca. <laughs> Could be that too. Most of his stuff was made from things that you would just find in a junkyard or a scrapyard. So the authorities subsequently interviewed Buckley Christ and... After realizing that the address on the package was made up, they came to the conclusion that the bomb was probably intended for Christ himself. So the bomber probably wanted it to be returned to sender so he would open it. Mm -hmm. Investigators continued to look into the case and asked if Christ had any known enemies but he was just as puzzled as everyone else was to who have may have sent him the bomb. While the bomb did little damage, Ted Kaczynski undoubtedly learned a thing or two by sheer trial and error. And almost one year later, in May of 1979, he struck again. Once again, in the Chicagoland area. 35-year-old graduate student John Harris made a choice probably any one of us would have made, and it nearly cost him his life. He later said in an interview with Newsweek, there was a cigar box on the table outside my office. I picked it up 
intending to put some pens and pencils inside. It turned out to be a bomb. It had a detonator that went off. I saw a bright flash. I don't remember hearing anything. Think about how terrifying that must have been. You're just going to use this to put your pencils inside. And then as you open it, you realize you see a detonator and realize it's a bomb. It feels like a movie or something, you know? It does. It does. And I don't, I don't like it. Now, John Harris, just like Terry Marks, only suffered minor injuries, superficial burns. But had he opened the cigar box differently, or maybe if he was a little bit closer to it, the results easily could have been deadly this time. Yeah, he def- it definitely sounds like he got lucky. He did. And it wasn't long after the second bombing that investigators started to find a piece of evidence that would connect all of the bombings. A small shard of metal with the initials FC on it. There were no hairs, no fingerprints, and all of the pieces of the explosive were made from things that you would commonly find in a U.S. home at the time. Mm-hmm. But the scrap of metal with the letters FC would keep popping up in future bombings, including one on an airliner later that year. In November of 1979, American Airlines Flight 444 took off from Chicago bound for Washington, D.C. Now, I've heard some conflicting reports from this, but it sounds like not long after takeoff, a loud bang was heard coming from the cargo storage area. And moments later, smoke began filtering into the plane cabin from the air vents. You know what's interesting to me, just like looking in specifically like airport security, especially like pre 9-11, like people, like people complain all the time about going through TSA and whatever right. to like to fly wherever. But people were literally so easily able to sneak bombs and weapons and drugs on board. Like, it was no big deal. Yeah. And it happened all the time. I mean, the thing is, is 9-11 was not the first hijacking. Right. It was just the last hijacking that made at least American authorities and largely the world say, okay, we're done with this shit. This isn't happening again. Yeah. I mean, if you think of like D.B. Cooper, he hijacked a plane. Now, thankfully, nobody was killed in that incident. But there were plenty of terrorists that had hijacked planes before, too. But in this case, thankfully, the airliner diverted its landing. It landed at Dulles Airport and nobody on board was injured. And as you mentioned, thinking about this in the present, I would say it would be pretty unlikely that the bomb would even make it onto the plane with all of the security we have now. But again, this was 20 some years before 9-11. The bomb itself had enough explosives to blow up an entire side of the plane, but it had only partially ignited, apparently, as most of the pyrotechnic material was burned away. But regardless of how many casualties there were, the FBI took note and they were on the case now and they immediately began investigating the bombing as an act of terrorism and they found the same shard of metal with the letters fc on it in the debris around the explosion and clearly the unabomber was kind of upping the stakes here Delivering a bomb to a university, as horrifying as that is, is one thing, but placing one on the back of a jumbo jet, that's something else entirely. <laughs> yeah. It yeah. was it was at this it's, moment that the it's FBI quite the escalation. It is. Yeah. He's definitely, you know, climbing the ladder, so to speak, in terms of what he wants to do with these bombs. And it was at this moment that the FBI realized that they had a serial bomber on their hands. The next attack would come in June of 1980 when Percy Wood, who was the president of United Airlines, 
received a package. Upon opening it, he found a book titled Ice Brothers by Sloan Wilson. And just out of curiosity, I looked up the book. And essentially, it's like a historical fiction novel about this guy up aboard a U.S. Coast Guard ship off the coast of Greenland. For what it's worth, it's got good reviews on Amazon. So maybe it's a good read. I don't think it has anything to do with the Unabomber, but it was the book that he sent. Wood also found a note attached to the cover of the book and simply asked him to read it. Well, when he opened the book, a bomb went off. And unlike the previous bombs, this one severely injured its target. Percy Wood survived the bombing, but was left with major burns and cuts all over his body and his face. In the ensuing years, more bombs would be sent all over the country with no discernible connection to each other. But most of them with that shard of metal that I was telling you about with FC on it. Yeah. Was it like was it like written on it or like engraved? What did you say? I, I believe it was more engraved on it. Okay. And uh, when they when investigators began seeing this popping up over and over, well, first of all, they realized that it's the same guy doing all of this. Obviously, he wants to be recognized for his work. We see that a lot. But they also began wondering what those initials stood for. Some people thought maybe it was Fidel Castro. Maybe it was a communist sympathizer, something like that. And we'll get into it later, but it actually stood for Freedom Club. In October of 1981, a bomb was diffused at the University of Utah. In May of 1982, Janet Smith, who was a secretary at Vanderbilt University in Tennessee, opened a package with a bomb inside and was left with shrapnel wounds all over her body and severe burns on her hands. And in July of that same year, an engineering professor at the University of California, Berkeley, had similar injuries. Then he went on a three-year hiatus. And Emily, this was around the same time as the episode you just covered last week, the Chicago Tylenol murders, which if anybody hasn't listened, well, first of all, listen, because it's a great episode. But if you haven't listened yet, they were a series of poisonings that took place in the Chicagoland area in late 1982, where seven people died. And the only reason I bring this up is there has been a lot of speculation in recent decades that Ted Kaczynski was the man behind it all. This even resulted in an FBI investigation in 2011 into this matter, but that kind of stalled for legal reasons. And you can hear more on some of the theories as to why Ted Kaczynski may have been the perpetrator in that episode, but safe to say it's a possibility, albeit a circumstantial one. Either way, go listen to the episode and Emily has some good ideas on maybe who it could have been, but I think it's still a possibility and he seems like maybe he would be the guy behind something like this, but. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, like he didn't like target. I mean, he just kind of like sent bombs to whomever. Yeah. Although, you know what? Now that you bring that up, he was. He had a theme behind these bombings, and we're going to get into that with his manifesto and stuff. Maybe he isn't the type of person that would just randomly kill people. And in fact, he would go on to say that another killer that we'll talk about uh, shouldn't randomly have targeted people. So maybe it wasn't him. But the bombings from Kaczynski resumed in 1985. Another one went off at Berkeley this time maiming a graduate student, John Hauser, who ended up with a severed artery, partial blindness in one eye, and he lost four of his fingers. In December of that year, Ted Kaczynski would finally achieve 
the thing that he had seemingly been waiting for, his first fatality. It would take place in Sacramento, California. Kaczynski had walked into an alley behind a computer repair shop and placed a brown paper bag on the ground. Inside was, of course, a bomb with shrapnel glued to the outside of it. Hugh Scrutton, the owner of the computer shop, was just headed out for his lunch break When he walked outside, he noticed the paper bag sitting in the alley, and he probably did what any of us would have done. He bent over to pick it up, presumably to just throw it in the trash or something. That's when the bomb went off. Was he, like, trying to kill people up until this point, do you think? I I think he was honing his craft, if you know what I mean. Yeah. He was getting better at it. He was trying different things to see what worked and this time it worked it threw him 10 feet into the air with shards of metal ripping through his chest a person was nearby and they came running up to him and Hugh said quote oh my god oh my god help me end quote and those were the last words Hugh Scrutton would ever say He was pronounced dead less than a half hour later at the local hospital. That's awful. Poor guy. I mean, the last moments of your life are probably in bewilderment and confusion, wondering what just happened to me. Yeah. You know? The next attack would take place 14 months later in the Salt Lake City, Utah area. So as you can see, these are all across the country. They're in the Midwest, the West, the East, everywhere. So the whole country is kind of in panic mode by this time. But this time, investigators would finally get a break in the case. Just like Hugh Scrutton, Gary Wright worked at a computer store. In fact, he was the vice president of the company. And just like Hugh Scrutton, he saw some debris lying on the ground. Now, in this instance, it was not in a brown paper bag. It looked like a piece of wood with some nails sticking out of it. Mm -hmm. So Gary gave it a kick. I think it was to just get it out of the way of traffic because this was... Don't touch the weird thing. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so he gave it a kick to get it out of the way of traffic and the device exploded, severing the nerve endings in his arm. But, as luck would have it, one of the employees of the store had seen a man place the device on the ground just moments before. And he saw her, too, through the glass window. They locked eyes with each other for just a few seconds before he hurried away. But she got a good enough look at him to provide a sketch to investigators. And not just any sketch. The sketch. It's the sketch. I would say almost definitively the most famous or infamous sketch in law enforcement history. I'm not even sure if there's much debate for that. Like, that's how high on the list it is. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. I'm sure... That one are probably like the Zodiac Killer. Yeah, that one's up there too. And I'm guessing you can see it in your head right now. Yes, 
I can see both of them in my head. <laughs> it's a man with aviator sunglasses, a hoodie over his head, and a mustache. Another hiatus would come after the Salt Lake City bombing, this time for six long years. And I don't think it's a coincidence to say that he was keeping a low profile at this time, mainly because, as we just mentioned, this sketch was all over the place in those six years. It was on the news. It was on America's Most Wanted, other crime shows. It was in every FBI and law enforcement office. I'm sure he was well aware of the sketch and probably realized that maybe he had gotten a bit too cocky, by which I mean delivering the bombs in person like he did with the previous two might not have been his best move. Yeah. He, he wanted his work to be noticed, obviously. That's why he was putting FC over everything. But he didn't want to be noticed. He didn't want his identity to be revealed. In those six long years, I think he was deciding whether or not he wanted to still do this. Ted Kaczynski, as we mentioned in the open, was by all accounts a genius. And he was living in a remote cabin in the Montana wilderness. But also at this time, he was working on a 35,000 word manifesto, which he was hoping to release to the public. He wanted the world to know why he was doing this. And he did have a reason behind it. But he did go back to bombing. In June of 1993, he bombed geneticist Charles Epstein in California, causing severe damage to both of his eardrums with hearing loss, and he also lost three fingers. Just two days later, he bombed a Yale professor in Connecticut all the way across the country. So this shows some pretty heavy-duty strategic planning here, I would say. If you're bombing someone on one side of the country, two days later, you bomb someone on the other side of the country. Now, thankfully, David, who was a computer science professor, also survived. He had severe burns, shrapnel wounds, damage to his eyes as well, but he did live. The bombings would continue for almost another two years. In December of 1994, sadly, Thomas J. Moser, who was an advertising executive, opened one of the Unabomber's bombs and died almost instantly in North Caldwell, New Jersey. Just four months later, in April of 1995, Gilbert Murray also died in Sacramento, California. He was a timber industry lobbyist. That would bring the death toll to three for the Unabomber. But it was around this time that Ted Kaczynski began reaching out to the media and he wanted to cut a deal. He wanted them to publish his 35,000 word manifesto. And just to put that in context, like the notes that I wrote for this episode here are about 3,500 words. So that's a lot of words, especially to put in your newspaper at the time. You know, this wasn't going on the internet. This was going in the newspaper. I mean, like your average in print like that I did. Yeah, you would like know. The average the average like in print story was less than a thousand words and that took up that could take up like half a page. Right. I mean And you're this, talking that times thirty five. This is some serious obviously some serious ego was involved with this. You know But I mean like a lot of it which from what I remember and what I know about the manifesto is didn't he didn't he like type out the like industrial 
So it's titled Industrial Society and Its Future. It lays a lot of the blame on technology for destroying communities. In a sense, he said that everything that's gone wrong with the human race began with the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s and says, and you know, and I'm paraphrasing here big time because this is 35,000 words, but he basically says that once we invented machines to start doing all of our stuff for us, that is when society began to break down. And he wrote that it's a system that destroys nature. It's a system that suppresses individual freedom. And basically, he says that humans adapt to machines rather than vice versa, resulting in a society that is hostile to human potential. It's some deep stuff. He really, really goes into detail. And you can tell this isn't the common writings of a madman here. Like he actually put some serious thought into this. And in fact, later when he was on trial, it was determined that he was not insane. He had been working on this manifesto for over 20 years, obviously tinkering with some stuff, but he started working on it in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. So he put a lot of time into this thing. Well, yeah, it's 35,000 words. Right. So. In our, I wonder how many words we like speak in our average episode. You think we even speak 35,000 no. words? No, we don't. Because like I said, my notes are about a little over 3,000 for this. And then give or take, you and I probably speak another 2,000 words maybe. It's probably like 5,000 words for an episode or something like that. So this takes a long time to get through. 124 pages. That's crazy. To put that in perspective for you, that's how long it was. But a lot of groups started giving this a lot of credence even groups that he did not intend, like neo-Nazis, some far, far left environmental groups also kind of looked at this as, you know, what they wanted to adhere to. But the thing is, is a lot of the media weren't sure about whether or not they should release this manifesto. I mean, what's rule number one with terrorists? You don't negotiate with terrorists. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of back and forth on this. Yeah, because the Washington Post published the whole thing, right? Yeah. And with with some help from the New York Times, attorney general at the time was Janet Reno. She was the first female attorney general in the country in the Clinton administration. And she authorized the printing. It went all the way up to her. Her idea was that, look, if we print this, somebody's going to be able to identify this guy. Just based on all of this writing, it's going to be familiar to someone because everybody in the country is going to read it. Maybe just bits and pieces, but everybody is going to want to see this thing. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, when it was printed, the publicity around it led to everybody reading it and also led to Ted Kaczynski being identified by his own brother, David Kaczynski. Mm-hmm. So a little backstory yeah. on where Ted Kaczynski was when he was arrested. He was in the Montana wilderness and he had actually been visited there a number of times by his father. His father was apparently kind of impressed by Ted's skills in the wilderness uh, his father was also diagnosed with terminal lung cancer in 1990. In October of 1990, Ted Kaczynski's father shot and killed himself in his own home. And some people believe, and he never said this, but some people believe that his father's death 
is when Kaczynski started reassessing things and maybe wanting in his own mind to come with to come to some sort of compromise with federal agents. And that's why he gave the federal officials the chance for the bombings to stop by saying, hey, if you release this, I'll stop doing the bombings forever. Now, as we mentioned, they did. His brother recognized not only his handwriting, but the theories that he had. He had been talking about this stuff ad nauseum for years, you know? And I don't know about you, but when you have like a friend or a family member and they always go into the same rant about something, you're Mm -hmm. like, oh boy, here they go again. Here's Ted Kaczynski going again, talking about the industrial complex and all of that. And then when you see it in writing on the Washington Post, I'm sure you think, oh, my God, my brother's the Unabomber, <laughs> you know, and that's what happened. Imagine, uh, Yeah. Like, imagine coming to that realization, though, like. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it, it would just be insane. I, you know, we've had instances of that before, but probably not on this level. You know, somebody this infamous as Ted Kaczynski. Yeah. But on April 3rd, he was arrested at his cabin in Montana. And a lot of evidence was found, including a live bomb. And also the original copy of his manifesto, the one you talked about, the one he wrote out freehand because the actual manifesto he wrote on a typewriter, that was all discovered at the cabin. He was indicted on over a dozen federal charges. He went to court in 1996 and actually pled not guilty to all of the charges, which is kind of surprising. Yeah, you'd think. During the next 18 months or so, he argued with his defense attorneys who they wanted to issue an insanity plea against his wishes, but it was determined, like I said earlier, he wasn't insane. He wanted to actually defend what he called legitimate political motives in carrying out these attacks. Well, he wanted to represent himself and the judge yeah. was like, no. Yeah, like, they, they they basically wouldn't let him. Imagine being his lawyer. Oh, man. Yeah. At the start of his uh, trial in January of 1998, the judge did reject his request to represented himself and also rejected his request to have a new defense team. On January 22nd, he did plead guilty on all counts. And because of this, he was actually spared the death penalty, believe it or not. Somehow, like, I feel like I'm, this is just my opinion. Okay. But I think, I wonder if he wasn't spared the death penalty because, because he was so smart that I wonder if people like didn't want to try and use him for something good like that. Um, uh, Frank Abagnale. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cause you remember what's, um, Tom Hanks is in that movie and Leonardo DiCaprio. That is, um, catch me if you can catch me if you can. Yeah. Good movie. Yeah, super good movie. But that guy, I mean, I guess I don't know where his intelligence was, but like the shit that he did. He was pretty smart. Yeah, he was super smart. Lots of fraud. But when he was in jail or prison or whatever, like he made some sort of deal where like he like he helped the the FBI and shit like be able to like catch fraudulent checks and stuff like he taught them what he did. Right. So, yeah, he was spared the death penalty. He really showed no remorse for his crimes. And he was sentenced to four life sentences in May of 1998, plus 30 years, just for good measure. 
just for good measure. Yeah, we're we're going to, you know what, four it's life just, germs, we're going to tack on an extra 30 just for the hell of it here. Yeah. Why not? Where's he going to go? Hmm? Right. Well, and this was something I really found interesting because I had not heard about this until I started researching this case. And this is one of the more fascinating things I found about the Unabomber case. So he was being held in the Colorado Supermax prison. And this is the late 90s. And guess who he befriended? A number of high-profile criminals. Mm, shocking. And apparently they were all being held together. He actually even discussed his friendships with them at length in numerous letters that he wrote throughout the time period. Two of the men he wrote about were Ramsey Youssef, who was a convicted terrorist who was responsible for that first bombing of the World Trade Center, which occurred back in 1993, which I would say is largely forgotten about because of what happened eight years later in 2001. But yeah, yeah this so... This was a case where there was a van that was packed full of explosives, was detonated at the bottom of the World Trade Center site, and Ramsey Youssef's goal was for the North Tower to collapse and fall into the South Tower, knocking both of the buildings down and killing tens of thousands of people. Now, thankfully, that didn't go according to plan. But the blast still killed six people, including a pregnant woman, and 50,000 people were evacuated that day. It just kind of makes your stomach churn because we know what's coming just a few short years later after that when both of the buildings came down. But the other guy who he befriended was a guy by the name of Timothy McVeigh. And if that name rings a bell, it's because he was a former U.S. Army vet turned domestic terrorist who perpetrated the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995 that killed 168 people. And at the time, it was the deadliest act of terrorism in the U.S. until 9-11, six years later. I did recognize that name. Yeah. There's a really good documentary about that Oklahoma City bombing in, on Netflix, too. And now there's a big memorial there in Oklahoma City. So for a time, Kaczynski, Ramsey Youssef, and Timothy McVeigh were all held in neighboring prison cells at the Colorado prison. And I guess they were described as workout buddies by the prison guards. They would walk around the compound together discussing their ideologies and what in their minds they could have done better. These writings are actually archived at the University of Michigan and were released about 20 years later after his arrest. In a letter he wrote to journalist and reporter Rick Salinger in March of 1999, Kaczynski said the following, Dear Rick, thanks for your letter. In answer to your question, yes, I do share exercise time with Timothy McVeigh and Ramsey Youssef. As you probably know, McVeigh has been moved to Terre Haute, Indiana. I have not recently shared exercise time with Ramsey Youssef, but I do frequently take rec with a couple of other well-known inmates. I won't mention their names without their permission. I know very little about what the media have said about Ramsey, but I can say what has been written about McVeigh has been misrepresented by the media. I don't know whether he did what they say he did or what his motives were if he did do it, but on a personal level, he is a very decent fellow, friendly and considerate of others. My impression is that he and Ram Ramsey Youssef are very bright Actually, the people I'm acquainted with in this range of cells, known as Celebrity Row, are nicer than the majority of people I've known on the outside. I should add that 
a lot of what the media have printed about McVeigh is crap. He is not a neo-Nazi racist, far from it. And he doesn't believe that satellites control people or that he has a computer chip implanted in his chest. That was some of the conspiracy theories going on around the time about Timothy McVeigh. You know how these conspiracies pop up after tragic events. That was one of them. The letter goes on to say, my speculative interpretation is that McVeigh resembles many people on the right when he says that he means the right side of politics who are attracted to powerful weapons for their own sake and independently of an likelihood they will ever have a practical use for them. Such people tend to invent excuses, often far-fetched ones, for acquiring weapons for which they have no real need. And in another letter, he went on to call the Oklahoma City bombing unnecessarily inhumane, which is kind of remarkable to hear that from another infamous killer to call something like that inhumane. But I think, you know, that's just a few of the transcripts from what I found. You can find a whole lot of his letters online, letters that he wrote to journalists and just ordinary people who wrote to him. But to me, it kind of gives you a glimpse into the guy's mind and shows how smart of an individual he really was. I'm not saying he wasn't terrible. Obviously, he was, but he was very smart. No joke, we've read a lot of letters and notes from killers over the course of this over the course of this podcast and he mm-hmm. by far has the best grammar of any of them and doesn't seem to be quote unquote insane which makes his motives all the more baffling. I mean, we talked earlier about how he didn't have many of the tropes you see when talking about some of history's notorious killers. And it really is true. The guy was an enigma right up until his death just about a month ago. Kaczynski was found unresponsive in his cell at the Federal Medical Center in Buntner, North Carolina, around 12.25 a.m. on June 10th of 2023. Now, he had been battling late-stage cancer since the end of 2021. But that is not what did him in. Federal prison officials actually deemed his death to be suicide. Just like his dad. At least that's... Yeah. And and a lot of people aren't talking about that right now. But that is... At least that's that's what the initial investigation is leaning towards. Death by suicide. Yeah, like I had heard that he died, but I didn't like read too much into it. But like, I mean, he's older, so I figured yeah. he was just old. He was 81 years old. Yeah. But it also um, was released that responding staff immediately tried to initiate all of the life-saving measures that they could. The staff requested emergency medical services and life-saving efforts continued. He was transported to a local hospital and subsequently was pronounced deceased by hospital personnel. So he was incarcerated for about 25 years for this bombing. And a long um, time to be. And I honestly, I mean, not that I would ever do anything to get myself like a life sentence in prison but from what i have heard and read about what happens when you're in prison like i i can't say that i wouldn't do the same after so long well and i think it's different for everybody i think some people I mean, are just used to being institutionalized and actually leaving prison is what's tough for them. Well, and I mean, we make it that way. Yeah, we do. We don't make it easy for them. That's for sure. Yeah. Other people, I think (laughs) they might have a more difficult time acclimating to the prison lifestyle, but 
you know, we, we talked about his motives. We talked about the manifesto, but we still have yet to get the, get to the crux of why he was the way he was because he graduated with a degree from of mathematics from Harvard in 1962 with a 3.12 GPA at Harvard. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah. When he was in his second year at Harvard, this is when people say maybe he started to take a turn. He participated in a pretty controversial study. And this study was later described by the author Alston Chase as, quote, a purposely brutalizing psychological experiment. This was led by the Harvard psychologist Henry Murray at the time. And what would happen is they would tell the subjects to debate their personal philosophy with another student, right? Mm -hmm. And they were asked to write essays that talked about their personal beliefs, their aspirations, whatnot. These essays were given to an anonymous person who would then use that subject matter to belittle them. And Murray called it vehement, sweeping, personal, abusive attacks. This went on for like two years, I think. And they also had like those little electric things that they hook up to your body that uh, monitor your psychological reactions, your brain activity. And they filmed all of these interactions and people ended up getting really angry while this was going on, while they were being belittled. It might not sound like much, but mm -hmm. when this is going on over and over for two years and Ted Kaczynski spent as much time as 200 hours part of this study, it might make somebody's mind break to a certain extent. Maybe somebody who was already inclined to maybe go extreme, something like this may have pushed him over the edge. And that's what his lawyers later said. They attributed some of his later hostility towards some of the some of these psychological experiments. Doesn't justify what he did by no, any no, means. No. Yeah. But it certainly offers maybe some of an explanation as to why this maybe went down all these years later. Now, as far as I know, none of the other subjects who were in this experiment obviously did anything like this, anything of this nature. But like we were saying, if you're somebody who's already maybe inclined to go over the edge, this may be that push that's needed to push you off the deep end. So, something to think about. Yeah. I mean, there are several cr criminals out there who were in like weird science experiments that people think are why they committed their crimes. Yeah. And so perhaps let's not do that. There's all kinds of stuff that can happen to you when you're younger. And I know he was in college, but you know, his brain was still wasn't fully developed yet. And there's all kinds of things that can happen to you when you're younger that affect you later in life. I mean, look yeah. at ch child molesters. Mm -hmm. the majority of them were molested themselves and the cycle just continues, you know, you know, people who abuse their partners, whether it's psychologically or physically, there's a good chance that they were abused when they were younger as well. And maybe because he was part of these experiments is why he released his anger on society 
decades later in life. It's hard to say, but it's certainly something worth pointing out. But there he is, the uh, enigma that was Ted Kaczynski. It's hard to put everything he did and everything he stood for in a single episode. And maybe we should have made it a two-parter at least here, but I kind of think it gives you an idea of not only what he did, but what America was like at that time and yeah. how, how scared everyone was, especially in the 90s, especially when there were two deaths in a row right there at the end and then he released the manifesto. People were freaking out. Rightfully so. Yeah. Because you never knew who was going to be next. No, you don't. But you never know when we'll be next either. You never know when we're coming back. Actually, we're going to come back with some summer sods for sure. I know we're going to do at least... segue. I know, right? I, I was trying to think of a smooth segue there. I know we're going to have at least a couple summer sods to tide you over in these uh, next couple of months here. Yeah, for sure. But um, if anybody has any ideas on what they would like us to cover. We've done that in the past. Throw them our way on our socials. Yeah. Come hang out with us on Instagram, Unnatural the Podcast. Facebook, Unnatural, a true crime podcast. You can also send us a Gmail, unnaturalthepodcast at gmail.com. And as always, be sure to rate, subscribe, follow, and share us with your friends. Until next time. Aw. It's kind of bittersweet here. I mean, I'm happy. We'll be back. It'll be fun. Yeah, fine. we will be back. I, I, will be it, it's been a great season. We're going to have a fun time. We're yeah. going to have a great summer. We want everybody else to enjoy their summer. On that note, make good choices. And don't get got. Bye. Are you doing anything special over the summer? I'm going to a concert in August. Who are you going to see? Um, All American Rejects, Newfound Glory, The Starting Line. Nice. There's somebody else, but I don't remember who. Swing, swing, swing from the tangles of my, my heart, heart is crushed by a form of love. Can you help me find a way to carry on again? <laughs> we haven't done a song in a while. Aww. I know. You know how these yes. conspiracies pop up after tragic events. That was one of them. You think you see one UFO and then everything <laughs> that happens is a cover-up. Yeah, somehow it has something to do with the submarine, too. <laughs> But the point is, we preserved. We're, we, no, we didn't preserve. We persevered. <laughs> we persevered, Emily. We did, barely. <laughs> I guess we stayed preserved, too. <laughs> I got lots of preservatives no, in me. Here we are. Thanks for coming along on the ride. Yeah. I just, you know, sometimes when I geek out and I text you, I'm like, oh my God, we just had 70 downloads from Italy or... Thailand or the most remote place I believe to ever have downloaded us is the Faroe Islands which if you look at that at Google Earth it's pretty much in the middle of nowhere like right up by the Arctic Circle which is crazy I'm I'm hoping somebody at some point will download us from Antarctica because I just want to see if that registers (laughs) That would so be awesome. So if you awesome. know anybody, like any of the science folk who are down in Antarctica right now, just say, hey, little, uh, help help us with this little science experiment. Download this podcast. Yeah. Help a brother and a sister out here. Yeah.
couple of weeks or so. I didn't even know that he was married previously. Oh. 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 I missed those. Anyway. I hadn't heard those for so long, Emily. Your sneezes. Oh. Um. And just as a... <laughs> Don't look at me. 